huge delight to be gathered to worship Jesus on his day with his people this morning. I get to open the word with you in the time of our service where we preach through a text of scripture. If I do a good job with you today, what's going to happen is you will be ready to receive from the text that we will be going deep in all from now until Christmas. We're going to be pressing through the biblical book, Older Covenant Prophecy of Malachi, and my job is kind of both to preach the gospel to you and also help you go, okay, as I am thinking on these words, reading through this book of the Bible with you over this time, being in smaller community and engaging text by text, listening to the preaching of the word, what, what is going on here? How do I hear these words? My aim this morning is to get us ready to do that and to also be an encouragement to you from these words. Um, so let me pray and just ask God for his grace to us in that. Father, there's so much here for us to benefit from and to be shaped by. I pray that Today, in your grace, you would give us a love for the Word of God, a passion for it. It feels kind of foolish having just driven by thousands and thousands of people who are disinterested in your person and your gospel and your Word, but we are convinced that you have met us here and that from among the nations and through the centuries, you are calling a people to yourself, that the way is narrow and few are those who find it, but those who do find eternal joy. I pray that you would multiply out the work of your spirit in our souls through these words to these thousands of people, that they too would come to see the glory of God in the face of his son, Christ, and find salvation in his name. You could do this, and we long for you to do it. We drag in here the sins of this week and a thousand reasons to be distracted and disheartened and unbelieving. I pray that you would tear that away and give us a vision of God in his grandeur and his love for us. Come and do that through the preaching of your word and our ears, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me start here. I hate to do this to you, but... Last season, your Boston Red Sox suffered the worst collapse in the history of Major League Baseball. Do you remember this? In early August, they were on pace to win 100 games, go to the playoffs, and who knows what. By October 1st, it was done. The season was finished. Everything had come apart. And on the outside looking in, we were going, what, what is going on here? You couldn't figure it out. It didn't make sense. These are the Red Sox. This is the second highest payroll that exists in baseball. They had super duper, super duper stars. They were still playing at Fenway Park, which had a great home field advantage, or at least we thought It wasn't supposed to be this way. This was supposed to be the season that they got back to glory 
on the outside looking in, we couldn't figure out what, what had happened to ever cause this. But then reports started to kind of seep out through those channels that the manager of the team had lost control and grown distracted and was aloof. And that the most important players on the team were just not taking things seriously. And that that had gripped the soul of the whole team and they just all spiraled to defeat. In mid-October, at the end of the season, Bob Holer, Boston Globe columnist, wrote this long, windy column, and he explained to us what had happened. He told us that some of the leaders on the team, we're talking about the most important players, all-star starting pictures, stopped caring. They were getting pounded whenever they took the hill, but then they were just like waltzing through the dugout like nothing was going on having video game competitions, drinking beer, and eating fried chicken. Do you remember this? In the clubhouse. And he told us that the boss, the manager, was having issues at home and had grown distracted and wasn't doing anything about any of this behavior at all. He was aloof. He was distant. He was detached. And that thing, that spirit caught a hold of this team, and they just pittered to defeat. You know how this works, right? You look around you and you see that nobody else is taking it seriously, that nobody else is doing what they're supposed to do, not even the boss is paying attention, things are just going from bad to worse. What happens in that moment in your soul? What happens? You get frustrated and discouraged, maybe a little bit angry, confused. The word that we're going to be going for is disillusioned. You grow disillusioned. And then it becomes very easy for you to do what? This right here. Just give up. Just give in. Shrug your shoulders. You now stop doing what you were supposed to do. You now stop putting forward your best effort. You stop trying because it's become obvious that something that was supposed to be amazing, it's not going to be, and this is not worth your effort. Okay, think with me. Have you ever been involved in something like that? Maybe it was a class that you took. Maybe it's a class that you're in. You show up all chipper, your backpack is on, you're ready to go, you're excited about the subject matter, you see the professor's name, this is going to be good, you see who else is in the class, they're going to sharpen you, this is going to be awesome. And then what happens? The teacher is distracted, showing up late, not really giving their full effort, just letting the class run wild. Everybody else is showing up and not, they didn't do the reading, they're not interested in in dialoguing with you, and you just go, oh, what's your tendency right there? It's to grow disillusioned with that class, right? So what do you do? You stop prepping the reading. You start going to the gym or watching some tunes instead of coming to the class. Disillusionment sets in. Has this happened to you guys at work? You take a job, you think it's going to be something awesome. 
or you're on a project that's going to change the face of the company. You've got some of the elite members of the team with you. You're all ready for it. It's going to be awesome. And then, a couple of weeks in, you realize the CEO doesn't even know that we exist, doesn't even care. The manager, the boss of this thing is incompetent and disinterested and aloof. I didn't realize I was going to be working in a Dilbert cartoon, that this was Scranton, Pennsylvania right here. What happens to you in that moment? You just grow disillusioned and your shoulders shrug and you start going, I thought this was going to be something great and it's not. Have you ever been in a church like this before? I think we all have. You're showing up at church now. How could that not be awesome? The people of God, the word of God, the grace of God, mission to the cities that he's called us to. I'm going to be discipled. I'm going to be loved. I'm going to be corrected. We're going to sing. It's going to be great. Then you become a part of a church where the leaders are mailing it in, either disinterested or self-interested, but don't really care about you or the mission. And nobody's really giving and nobody's really serving and nobody's really taking it seriously and you you realize this is a joke. What is so easy to settle into your heart right there? Disillusionment. This is a waste. Why am I bothering? Maybe I'll come, but I'm not going to be invested. Do you feel that? We've all been there at some point. This is going to be great. Wait, it isn't. Why bother? Okay, the reason I need you to feel that is because that is exactly where the people of God were at the time of Malachi. Exactly. Let's talk about this so you don't miss it. The older covenant people of God were actually a literal physical nation, like United Nations nation. Okay? It was called the nation of Israel or Israel. As a whole, we know their story. They were a pack of wretched sinners, just like you and me, who failed to keep covenant well with God over and over and over again. And so at different times in Israel's history, God would have to act in judgment and judge his people. One of those big judgments is something that we call the exile. Here's what happened. God in his grace had given his people a land to live in. Palestine, the promised land. We call it the land of wicked big honeycombs and abnormally large cows flowing with milk and honey. Israel, the promised land. The southern part of the promised land was called Judah, and the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem up on a hill, and at the center of Jerusalem was the temple of God. In other words, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, the temple, this was the locus, the center point of God's reign of his people and of the world. Do you know what that meant? That meant that Jerusalem and the temple of God were supposed to be the most beautiful, most glorious, most famous, most revered spot in the whole world. And in King Solomon's day, It was. The temple was brand new. Smelled like a a new car. Still shining. He just built it. Jerusalem was in its height of its power. 
They were the superpower of the world at this time. Nobody was close to them. People from the other nations would flock to Jerusalem, to the temple, to Solomon's palaces to go, wow, your nation is awesome. Your God is awesome. They would bring tribute, give gifts because of its splendor. This is what Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple were supposed to be. In other words, put New York City, San Francisco, Paris, London, Rome, Dubai to shame. This is God's city right here. It was supposed to be awesome to be a part of the people of God and to live in the city of God. But before Solomon is even done, what happens? He starts to lead the people into sin. Several generations later, God acts in judgment. He raises up Babylon. They come in and they destroy Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They rip that temple down to the ground. God's people are chained together and they are walked to Babylon to live in slavery as exiles in a foreign land. They are there for a few centuries and then uh, for a few generations. And then God acts again, but this time in mercy, in steadfast love. He raises up a man named Cyrus, not Billy Ray, King Cyrus, who overthrows Babylon, leads the people, makes a decree that the Jews can return to Jerusalem, to Judah, to their city. Then God moves on the hearts of Nehemiah and Ezra, and Nehemiah rebuilds the temple with the people, and Ezra restores the worship of God among the people in the temple. And everyone is thinking what? What are they thinking right here? Dude, this is it. The glory of God is going to come back big time to Jerusalem. The Messiah, the King, is going to appear. We're going to be back on top of the world. This is going to be crazy. They can smell it coming. They know it. But then, years go by. Decades go by. And none of that happens. It just kind of goes flat. Instead of riches like Solomon, the people are broke, barely surviving on the harvests as they come in. Instead of fame like with Solomon, Israel is a joke in the eyes of the other nations. Instead of being a nation of great power and influence, Israel is like Canada. You know what that's like? This first temple was amazing. It was Taj Mahal quality, restoration hardware, Ethan Allen. The one that Nehemiah scraps together is like Home Depot, Building 19, Christmas tree shop decorations. The gates are up, but they're kind of crooked and leaning to the left. The building's there, but the landscaping is just, ah, they didn't get to that part. It's just this whole return to Jerusalem is a disappointment. They're back home, but it's not what they thought. It was supposed to be amazing, and it's just not. This is not what God promised. What's worse is that their leaders, the leaders of the people of God, the priests, the ones who were supposed to be on fire for God and leading the people in holiness and obedience, 
they were a joke. I'm talking deep in sin. You're going to see this over the next few weeks, but they were basically pulling a Lester, Beckett, and Lackey, right? Beer and fried chicken in the temple, just going through the motions, messing around. They were giving shoddy sacrifices to the Lord. They were oppressing the people, taking advantage of everything that they could. It was bad, and everyone could see this, okay? If my life was a complete and utter joke and you saw that, you would just go, what is going on here? Something's not right there. And what's worst of all was that as far as the people could see, Yahweh, the living God, their covenant Lord, wasn't doing anything about it, nothing. He was letting their leaders get away with this ridiculousness. He was allowing his people to suffer indignities before the other nations. He wasn't providing for them. They were barely surviving financially. As far as they could tell, God had checked out. He wasn't acting. Day after day after day, nothing changed. Nothing got better. No Messiah showed up. Nothing. What do you think threatened big time to settle into the souls of these people in this day receiving this word? That they would grow disillusioned themselves and just give up, nail it in, whatever. God's not paying attention. He does not care about me or about us, his people. He might have made some promises to somebody like my great-grandfather, but he has obviously forgotten what he said. Look at what he's letting the priests get away with. We still have no Christ and no king. This is like the 2011 Red Sox right here. This is like that class that I took or that job that I had. This is a joke. And although the people do not outright reject God and like, Go move back to Babylon. What they do is they just start going through the religious motions like this. Whatever. Whatever. Their hearts are not in their service to God. I need you to feel that. They had, it wasn't just a threat anymore. They had allowed disillusionment to set in, rob their joy, compromise their obedience, steal their hope. You're going to see this over and over again as we preach through these texts with you. Sometimes it's just kind of like shoddy obedience. So the people continue to bring their sacrifices, but instead of bringing the fattest, brightest white lamb, they would bring the roadkill, basically, and offer that up to God. Why give up the good lamb? He's not paying attention. Instead of offering 10% tithe of their harvest, They would take the bucket and fill the bottom with sand and then drop some grain on top and give that, right? Why really give? God's not paying any attention at all. Some of them slid into just outright sin, marrying women who were devoted to other gods, divorcing the wives of their youth without even a thought. There was sorcery. There was adultery. There was fraud. In other words, it got bad. Despair and disillusionment got them, took hold of their hearts. That's where these people were. 
Right now, how does God respond to all of this? Gladly for them and gladly for us. He does not send them into exile again or just wipe them out, right? Malachi is the final book of the older covenant, but there's more to the story, a new testament and covenant. And that's because God doesn't end it with this generation's disobedience, but God speaks. He speaks. The first verse that Matt McCann read to you was this, Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. All right, let's spend some time right there and break this down. This is an intro to the book. First thing, word of the Lord, God speaks. We are resting on some beautiful biblical presuppositions to even be a people who believes that God speaks. I want to make sure that I articulate those for you so that you know why we're okay with this. Everybody who has ever lived has had to assume certain things to be true about the world blindly by faith, right? All of us have unprovable presuppositions about how the world works, and this affects how we read a text like this. So let's start with the one that you're most aware of because it's your day, the presupposition that says there is no God to speak to us. This started out as deism, which is the idea that there is a God, of course, where else did everything come from? But this God started up the universe and then just left it on its own. He is aloof. He is detached. He is not involved. So you have no chance of hearing from God because God is not in the business of speaking. You've got to figure this out on your own. We've taken a step forward with deism into straight atheism, which says not only is God aloof and not speaking, he's not even there. There is no divine being that created all things and governs all things and speaks to his people. God doesn't speak at all. The material world is all that there is. You're not going to hear a word from above or beyond. Over on the opposite side of this, we also have this in our day with our new ageism and spiritualism, is the presupposition of the world that there is God But God is not he or she or it. God is just the source of all being, the unity of all, the ground of spirit. The divine is not outside of you to speak to you. The divine is inside of you for you to tap into mystically. And if this is the way that the world works, we all rise up from this wicked material fleshly place to this inner spark of divinity But that inner spark of divinity is not a person, not a God who addresses, who speaks, who loves, who corrects, who saves. Then you have the world as Scripture declares it to be, built on some different beautiful, different propositions, beautiful presuppositions, that there is a God, and He is distinct from us, and in His freedom, For his glory, out of nothing, he created all that there is. And at the height of that creation, he made men and women in his image, distinct from him, but able to hear from him and to walk with him in obedience, in joy, in life. In other words, there is a God. 
He is outside of us, but he is for us, and he speaks to us and saves us. See how in the world there can be address from God to us. This is the way the world is. This is the way that a text like this works. God is speaking to his people, reminding, addressing, and shaping. How does this living God who we will be with forever speak to us? That's a complicated question. It's got some beautiful answers. In one sense, his clearest speaking to you was in the person and the work of his son, Jesus. In another sense, he speaks to us through the canon of Scripture, the inspired words of those who are carried along by the Spirit to speak truth to us to live our lives by. As we step into the life of the Scripture, we see that God speaks to his people through messengers. It's very humbling because it means that he gets a hold of sinful folks and he condescends to speak to them and we are to respond to them as if it was him speaking to us. This is God's way. In the older covenant, it was the prophets. Moses was the great prophet who gave us the content of the law of God, of the older covenant. Then God would send prophets, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Amos, Obadiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they would come with a word of the Lord to the people to shake them and remind them of the word of the Lord that God had given in the law and call them back to obedience. In the case of the text that we're going to live in, that prophet is Malachi. His name means messenger. Very weird, weird dudes with lots of advanced degrees have argued for thousands of pages about whether Malachi was a person named Malachi or Malachi is just a title of messenger. After all the reading, hear what I came up with? It doesn't matter. Whatever. God spoke through messenger Malachi, Malachi messenger, in his grace, a word to his people. Now, what kind of a word is this that we're going to swim in together? Heavy word. The text says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. You hear the beginning there, oracle? You know what that means? Burden. Heavy. A load to be lifted hard. Now, this is going to be so hard for us because we don't do heavy in Bostonian American culture. It's just not a part of our thing, right? Everything in American Bostonian culture is designed to distract you and to amuse you and to make you the most shallow group of people that have ever lived in the history of the earth. That's basically the object of our culture. The web has made this a thousand times even more fierce of a battle. Amazon Prime and iTunes and Netflix and On Demand, you could literally pitter away a hundred lifetimes right now just being amused and distracted by ridiculousness 24 hours a day. You could do it. We don't do heavy. We don't do eternal. We don't do deep. We escape from any kind of sober evaluation. And we certainly don't do God-heavy God is a complete joke in American culture. He's like a pet 
that you just kind of pat on the head and brings you a little bit of joy when you need it. Or he's like a buddy who chums up to you to make you feel great about yourself no matter what's going on. This is who the God of American church culture is. Let me just warn you, that's not who God is. And that is not who he is on these pages of scripture. This is an oracle. This is a burden that sat heavy on Malachi and landed heavy on God's people. God is as he is. Over 30 times you will hear this phrase, the Lord of hosts. That means the captain of angel armies, fierce in the defense of his glory, fierce in his love of his people, fierce in his discipline of them for their good. I need you to be ready for this heaviness. There will be some stuff that you read in here. At least I know my mom's read them and she's been like, what are you preaching through, son? That is heavy, heavy. You will feel like life and death in some of these passages. Good. We need that. Especially when the threat is there to grow disillusioned, we need God to show up as he is. Heavy. This is a burden, an oracle. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. Okay, last part of the intro. What's that about? To Israel means that this is 100% written to people who are in covenant with God. Now, that doesn't mean that these words will not be made powerful at Seven Mile Roads as we preach through this for unbelievers to hear and repent and believe. If you have never seen the glory of God, you can see it in these words and, and believe and come to life. It means that these words are written to and given to a group of people who should have known better. This is a people who had tasted, had experienced, had seen the glory of God. They should have known better than to give up hope, than to shrug their shoulders. They had received the grace and the promise of God. This was a gospel people who should not have fallen into the sin that they did. So there will be some correcting of you in this preaching series. But it also means that these are words to those who God is for. There is no doubt that God is for those whom he has foreordained, foreordained to be his. No doubt about it. And so you can receive these words as one who is inside of the electing love and grace of God. He is coming at you because he is for you. He is coming at you because he is for you. The oracle of the word of the Lord to his people, to his beloved, to Israel by Malachi. Okay, we're going to hear those words from God. And then the last thing in prepping you is this. As you hear the word of God, you're going to see two different kinds of words come up from people in this book. They are wildly different responses of words, and I need you to be ready for them as you hear them. The first is this. Some of the people will hear the word of the Lord, and then they will speak words back to God and not good ones. These are the kind of words that Marquise and I use when we're playing ball. It's called trash talk. They talk 
back to God. Malachi puts this fascinating rhetorical literary device to use throughout the book. You're going to see that it is organized by disputations. There's a total of six of these in the book, and each of them sounds kind of like a parent trying to talk some sense into an 11-year-old. Have you ever been a part of those conversations, either on the 11-year-old side or on the parent side? Those are rough, right? You're trying to speak truth and love, and the answers that come back to you are filled with flippancy and arrogance and frustration and misunderstanding and complaint and self-defense. Have you been a part of those conversations? Talking back to one who is talking to you in truth and love. That's what's going to happen in this book. Commentators argue about whether or not the people really responded with these exact words. Am I the only one with a skeptical mind that asks all these words of Scripture? Did they really say these things? How did this work? Did Malachi just put these words into their mouths? What's going on here? We don't exactly know. It's probably a combination of the two. Malachi knew these people like you know me, like I know you. He has lived among them. He has heard them complain and talk. He is putting into their mouths their attitude. He has heard the same refrains over and over and over and over again in his ministry. And he has probably synthesized these words and their responses into the prophecy that we have before us. In other words, if these people would have heard Malachi say, here's what the people say, they would go, yeah, that's exactly what we say to a T. That's us. So whether or not they literally said them as nice and neat as we will walk through them, the point is that these are fair representations of the things that the people were saying and of where their hearts were. And what is the nature of those words if you are talking back to God? Disputation, disagreement, denying, defensive, arguing. You're going to hear this. They keep coming back with how. God says, I have loved you. And they go, how have you loved us? God says, you're robbing from me. And they say, how have we robbed you? God says, you're bringing shoddy sacrifices and polluting my altar. And they say, how have we polluted your altar? Six times you're going to hear this response. Six times. In other words, instead of hearing God's words and being moved to repentance and sorrow and reform, they answer God back. And I need you to be honest with yourself as you hear this preaching and as you read this text and as you talk this through in gospel community. Is that you? Is that where your heart is at? I hear from God and I got an answer right away. It's who we are all the time. It's who most of these people were. And that back talk goes on until the end of the book. And toward the end, finally, some of them respond differently. This was the second text that Matt read to you, and I need you to feel this. Finally, after six cycles of disputation, a remnant, a small, faithful, God-loving, God-fearing little crew says, 
enough with talking back to God. It's finished. And they use their words differently. Instead of talking back to God, they speak to each other. Chapter 3, verse 16 said, Then those who feared the Lord spoke, and you're ready for it to say, spoke back to God, but it doesn't. It says, they spoke with one another. I need you to feel this. Every time anyone has spoken in this book, other than God through Malachi, it's been talk back, but not this crew. These are not words of denial. These are not words of disagreement or dissension or complaint. These are words of confession, of repentance, of challenge, of faith. This is the crew who was ready to hear from God. There's always that crew, right? There always is. Even in Melrose, there is that crew, many of them. And when they hear the word of the Lord, they respond with faith and they begin to speak to each other about it. What do we call that at Seven Mile Road? We call that gospeling one another, speaking God's words to each other. Spurring each other on toward holiness, joy, life, obedience. Hearing from God, turning those words out, and speaking them to each other. We didn't invent that. The people of God have always been the people who hear the word of the Lord and then gospel one another with that word. He speaks, we believe, and we speak to one another. And how does God respond to those words of ours. Verse 16 said, The Lord paid attention and he heard those words and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. I love that. I need you to love this. What does disillusionment say? God does not care for you. God is not aware of you. God is not paying attention to you. God does not remember you. But what does the text of Malachi say? When the people drew near to God and to each other with the word on their hearts and their lips, God did what? God paid attention. I love the bookend of this book. The whole time they are positive that God is not paying attention and at the end they see that God is, was, does. I love the metaphor. It's as if God got out a black shoppy marker, got out a book, started writing down the names of those who esteemed his name, feared him, and loved him. Does God forget? He doesn't forget. It's as if he wrote it down. And when you write something down, man, that means you are not going to forget it. What does God write about those people? It's just amazing gospel. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God 
and the one who doesn't. Please feel that. Disillusionment threatens and lies and tells you there is no distinction between those who serve the Lord and those who don't. There is no distinction between those who love God and who deny Him. There is no distinction. He's not paying attention. None of this matters. But the word of the Lord says, I pay attention. I write it down so I don't forget because I don't forget. And I make a distinction between those who are mine and those who are not. Those are the bookends of this book. And now we're going to invite you into swimming deeply in the details with us. God in his grace through his servant speaking his word to his people, those people believing and then speaking that word to each other. Two things will happen if we do well in this book as the people of God under the word of God. I want you to be thinking on these and making constant application. Uh, I would love for you to be getting familiar now with the book of Malachi. You could read this thing, you know, like in 15 minutes, it's only three and a half chapters long. There's two things that can happen here that can change your life, the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of our church that can be really helpful. Here's what they are. There could be more, but these are two for sure. One is this. We will become a people who don't give in to disillusionment, who don't do it. The application of that big idea is going to be very helpful at every level of your life. This is a rough age that we live in between the cross and the empty tomb and the return of Christ. In this time when he is bringing many into his kingdom, it is very easy for us to grow disillusioned. I know how long the list is of Seven Mile Road people and where they are threatened to be disillusioned. Think of it. Disillusioned about the truth of the gospel and the return of Christ. Back in Peter's day, they were disillusioned about this. It's a threat to us today. Disillusioned about the advance of the gospel. I mean, I'm telling you, my drive over here is so hard for two reasons. One, every time I get behind somebody going seven miles an hour on the Fellsway, it's brutal. Number two, I see thousands of people, probably hundreds of whom I have personally met because we have children in the city who are not coming to faith in Christ and have no interest in the gospel of Jesus. And my soul can be so disheartened just on the drive over here. It is a threat to look at this world and what we perceive as a lack of the advancement of the gospel and to grow disillusioned. It is easy to grow disillusioned just about this world, right? The headlines that kick through in Yahoo just going, wow, it is not even worth being happy or joyful in this life. We can grow disillusioned in the big picture. And personally, please hear this preaching to your soul. There are those of you who are disillusioned in your singleness. We have talked about it. I have felt it, and it's rough, and it's a threat to your joy. There are those of you who are terribly disillusioned in your marriage, and it's brutal, and you do not see any hope, and you feel like God has completely forgotten that you got married to this person and that you're his completely. I have seen, talk with you parents who are disillusioned about your sons and your daughters. God is just checked out. All of us in every sphere of our life weighed down by 
the temptation to just give up, give in, throw in the towel. I need you to hear the word of the Lord, the gospel of God. I need you to let that word shake you, straighten up those sagging shoulders, put some fire in those compromising hands, call you to see God as he is. He pays attention. He remembers. Don't give in to the disillusioned soul. It's the first thing that can happen here in beautiful ways week by week. And the second thing is that we will become a people who learn what it is to gospel each other. We plead with you to be involved in gospel community with us, right? Why do we do that? Because we want your joy. We want your holiness. And the people of God have always been those who were intimately connected to each other and spoke the word of his grace to encourage and correct and teach each other. I want so badly for Malachi 3, 16 to 18 to become a verse that marks out Seven Mile Road. We're going to do a little mural at the landing down here, and we've got to pick a verse for that, and it might be this one right here. They spoke with one another, and the Lord heard those words and wrote those names down and said, they will be mine. If we do this well, like never before, you will be committed to speaking and hearing the word, not just from your pastors, but from each other. And God can do an amazing work in shaking us from our disillusionment, both in our big services and in our homes. And if he does that, we will be the most joyful and the most hopeful and the most obedient and the brightest light for Christ that we can be. Let's ask him to come and do this for us. Father, it's a joy to sit under the preaching of your word. I am so glad that there is always a people of God, always. You never leave yourself without a people who are yours, called by your name, belonging to you. And I am thankful that it is those people, although they are under the greatest threat of being disillusioned, who need the most to have eyes of faith that can see the invisible, who need the worst to hear the word of the gospel, to be reminded that you know our names, you know them, and we're yours. I pray that you would meet us in the preaching of the oracle of the word of the Lord to your people through Malachi, and that there would be 50 or 60 or 70 or 100 people in here who have said no to disillusionment, no to compromised obedience, no to shrugging our shoulders and mailing it in, and yes to God and his son and his gospel. Father, you know me. You know how disillusionment threatens my soul in every part of this life that I live. I pray that you be gracious to me and my brothers and sisters that we would believe have life and joy in your name. Come and do it, I pray. Amen.